if y'all want to. It feels so loud up here every time. Um, if y'all want to open up to Proverbs 30, we'll start there. jump into the message, I just wanted to announce like the next couple of weeks what's going to be going on. So uh, for our guests here and all that stuff. Um, so next Thursday is the 17th. We'll still do the table. I know some of us will be in Jakarta, um, but we'll still do it. Uh, it's not mandatory. Don't worry, guys. And um, but we did want to have like, because I'm not speaking like a Christmas message or anything, but we did want to have a service to come together and invite our community to actually have like a proper Christmas celebration and service. And so we'll be doing that next week. The following Thursday is the 24th, and so we won't be doing anything that week. And then we haven't planned this one out, but I would really love to um, do like a giant worship night with all of our friends on the following Thursday, which would be New Year's Eve. And so um, just as like a night to like worship in the new year. Um, I think that's like an amazing part of one thing if any of y'all have ever been. And so um, we haven't planned any of that yet and there's lots of details still to be worked out, but that's what we're thinking. So next week we'll be here, John will be speaking some kind of Christmas message and then the following week we won't be here. And then the 31st, we're probably gonna do like a big worship night with all of our friends. So, um, so yeah, so if you're at Proverbs 30, um, verses 21 and like the first part of 22, it's, uh, it says, under three things the earth quakes, under four it cannot bear up, under a pauper when he becomes king. And so I, uh, obviously like we have our school coming up in January and I've been thinking, there's like three things that we want involved in our school. The first one is identity. The second is a foundation in the prayer, uh, in the prayer, in the word and prayer. And then the third one being uh, kingdom advancement. So that's like, living on mission, living an outreach like lifestyle. And so uh, I've obviously been thinking a ton about identity. I told Alyssa, I'm like, it's gonna be no surprise that I'm speaking on identity because that's like the only thing I ever talk on. But um, yeah, so this, this verse, it reminded, I was reading the other day and it reminded me of this story that Chris Valentin actually uh, tells. No surprise there either, another Bethel story. But, um, <laughs> He tells the story of when he first got to Bethel, he had uh, this assistant assistant of his, and she was like a really, really high feeler. And he used to be very, he still kind of is pretty like dry and sarcastic with his humor, but he noticed that every time that he was sarcastic with this woman, it like, it really hurt her. And uh, he it hurt her, but he, he didn't have enough courage to ask her like, hey, are you okay or what's going on? And so um, it got to one point where she was like starting to tear up and he was like, he was like, uh, what's going on? Are you okay? And she's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, um, and uh, he said, no, something's obviously going on. And so she opened up and basically said like, you don't realize how much people value you and your words are actually hurting the people that you're trying to lead. 
And so he, he goes to bed that night and he has a dream and he keeps hearing this verse over and over in his dream. And, um, and so I'm just gonna read you like what he, what his part of the story. And so he has this dream and he wakes up and he's still hearing this dream as he wakes up. So he says, I heard the Lord who seemed grieved asking me, do you know why the earth cannot hold up under a pauper when he becomes king? So Chris says, no. He says, but I have a feeling that you're gonna tell me. And so the Lord says, a pauper is born into insignificance. As he grows up, he learns through life that he has no value and his opinions don't really matter. Therefore, when he becomes king, he is important to the world around him, but he still feels insignificant in the kingdom that lies within him. Subsequently, he doesn't watch his words or the way he carries himself, and he ultimately destroys the very people he is called to lead. And then the Lord finishes and says, you, my son, are a pauper who has become king. And so there's like this heavy reality that as we step into leadership, our, our words and the, the things that we say actually carry a lot of value to the people around us. And if we're not careful, we won't, we won't be considerate of that. And so there, this is the reason why Moses actually had to grow up in Pharaoh's house. He, he grew up in an environment that taught him how to act like royalty. And so my whole message tonight is about identity, but it's less about the whole like son and daughter thing that I'm usually talking about and more about like how we react and how we respond and how we lead as like a royal priesthood, as people that are citizens and co-heirs with Christ as a king and being a part of a kingdom. And so the reason, one of the reasons why Moses had to grow up in Pharaoh's house was so that he would know how to carry himself as royalty because a person who is a slave internally can't uh, lead people out of slavery, slavery externally. And so you gotta think like, it's, I feel like it's hard for us to wrap our mind around what it would be like to be raised as part of a royal family because we don't have like monarchies like in our day-to-day -day life. But if you just imagine with me, like you would never know lack at all. Like you would, uh, you would not only like know that you're believed in, but you would know that you're really, really significant and that you would have a high calling and a high destiny on your life and you would walk in a certain way. You would know how to receive honor. You'd know how to receive affection and love because it would be so normal for you. And um, experiencing these things would, would produce confidence in you. And without confidence, I don't think you'll ever feel, uh, feel the freedom to like dream big, to take risks. It's no, like having that security and love and acceptance actually is what brings people freedom to take risks. And um, it's really easy to slip into like this victim mentality. Like as you grow up and you, you're not like taught that you're significant, it's really easy to slip into a victim mentality rather than actually feeling empowered in life. And so um, the Oxford Dictionary, I'm gonna get like super, I don't know what it is. Anyways, um, <laughs> it defines pauper as a very poor person. It defines uh, poor as lacking sufficient money to live at a standard considered comfortable or normal in a society or just simply as deficient or lacking. And so pauper, paupers are defined by their lack. It is what defines who they are and their deficiency. 
And so obviously we know like lack doesn't simply, it's not just simply in regards to money. Like people can have lack in every area of human need. You can have a lack in shelter, relationships, peace, joy. Um, and so because of that, paupers exist at every level of society. Like from the, the lowest of the lowest to the highest of the highest. And um, the more we begin to understand what actually happened at the cross, like what actually took place when Jesus went to the cross and paid for our sins and brought us into the family of God, the more uh, the issue of God's provision in our lives, whether it be financially, spiritually, emotionally, physically, it should just be solved in our minds. We should have this assurance that we have a father who is extremely generous and that loves to give to his children. And so what makes a pauper is, is obviously like the world that's inside of them. It's the beliefs that they have about themselves, about God, about the world around them, and, and how those beliefs uh, cause them to interact with that world. And so the tricky thing I feel like for most of us with these beliefs is that they're not always a conscious decision that we make. They're really sneaky and they, they develop as we do life. And so sometimes um, these, these thoughts come from like people speaking things over us and then other times it's just from us experiencing life and deciding that this is the way that the world works. And so um, we all have these, these like, <clears throat> these truths, like these mindsets that we carry around uh, that we learned as children and as we grew up. And so I'm gonna tell you all this weird story. So there was this, this man who was, uh, he was observing an elephant that was tied to like a little bitty stake in the ground by a rope, this huge elephant. And uh, he saw that the elephant could easily just take like one step past the rope's length and it would obviously just pull the stake out and then it could be free. And he was wondering why the elephant wouldn't just take that extra step. And so he asked the elephant keeper, um, why doesn't the elephant just simply walk away? And the keeper explained that if, if you tie an elephant up when it's young, it learns that it's not stronger than the stake and, if you, um, and that it can't break free. And so then as it grows up, it never actually breaks free of that belief system. So even though it's absolutely capable of just taking like one step past the rope and being free, it still, as a giant elephant, believes that that little stake in the ground is stronger than it. And so, when, when we become believers, when we become children of God, and we don't understand our identity, we don't understand what was actually purchased on the cross for us, we become like that elephant. We let these lies that life has taught us, that sometimes parents, leaders, friends have all told us, like about lack and deficiency and not being enough, they let us tie us down. And we don't actually uh, like step into risk. We don't actually dream big. And so we're children of God, like first and foremost. Like before we're missionaries, before we're worship leaders, before we are pastors, uh, apostles, prophets, like fill in the blank, we're children. Before we're any of that stuff. And um, what, what we believe about ourselves and the world will determine how we behave. 100% of the time. And so if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter 2. 
understanding the way that God thinks about us has to be the foundation for everything that we build off of. So 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So it's, I think, with the world that we live in, the way that we grow up, it's all too easy to have a... a, like a perception and a perspective of yourself that is really, really out of line of the way that God thinks about you, the way he sees you, the way he interacts with you. And we have to be really careful of projecting our opinion of ourselves onto God. Um, We're we're more than just simply sinners saved by grace. We've been made sons and daughters. It's not that like we're not sinners saved by grace. It just means that the goal of the Father wasn't just simply to get us to heaven. It was way more than that. It was to actually like restore us to our original purpose. It was to restore us back into relationship with Him, so that um, we would be like reproducing Him in the earth. And so, yeah, like sons and daughters represent their mothers and fathers all the time. And so. We have a calling to walk and live as sons and daughters and represent the Father, and we've been giving, given uh, authority, and with authority comes responsibility. And so, um, I will admit to you guys, this next section of the sermon is very much raw. I literally was just talking to Jeffrey and Haley about this yesterday, so I'm going to be externally processing a little bit with y'all. Um, so, Luke 12:48. you don't have to turn there, it's a short verse. It says, from everyone, uh, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. And so I, I um, yeah, I've just been thinking a lot over the past few weeks about our next, our next year. And so I think that there, I just think the Lord has a lot for us next year. I think it's going to be a year of like a lot of fruit. Maybe not, but I believe that. And um, I, I really do feel like it's it's a season for us to, um, the word, someone prophesied actually over our ministry, and um, they said it was like a season of you finding your smooth stones. And so not not that like 2021 is gonna be our Goliath, hopefully like 2020 was our Goliath, but, but like that it, it's a season for us to figure out what we're about like finding our smooth stones and finding the things that we're gonna like wage war with. And so um, I, I think like all this stuff surrounding English Corner is actually one of those stones. I really feel like the Lord is gonna bring fruit for that, from from and through that. And, um, and so like authority and responsibility always go hand in hand together. Like the authority that we're given from the Lord reflects the responsibility that we have to carry it out and how much responsibility he has actually given us. And so, um, like in the Great Commission, he says uh, he's called us to uh, make disciples of all nations. 
And um, I was reading that the other day, or yesterday, literally. Um, it says to make disciples of all nations, but for so long, and I think a lot of us, we have interpreted that as to make disciples in all nations. And um, I don't think that's wrong. Obviously, I think we're called to disciple individuals and stuff like that. But it does say that we are called to disciple, like make disciples of all nations. And so if I'm honest, I can't even like comprehend what it would be like to disciple a nation or to even like step in, into that direction. Um, but it really challenges my small thinking. It really challenges like if I believe that God has actually called us to, well, just Indonesia as an example, like, I don't even want, it's like hard for me to even say it, like to think about like, could we be discipling Indonesia? Not Indonesians, like Indonesia. And that's a really hard thing for me to wrap my mind around. Um, but I do think that like when we feel small or powerless, we tend to dilute the word of God down to what we can understand or what we can accomplish. And, oh, poor buddy. And, and so I, I think there's even a level of like we do that and then we end up not feeling convicted about like the big tasks that he's given us. And, um, and so we're, I'm just gonna like talk about authority in the Bible a little bit and kind of trace like the path of authority. And so obviously we all know in Genesis, uh, like from the beginning of creation, God gives authority to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, um, yeah, all that stuff. And then at some point in, in, that, uh, in that line in history, the devil comes and he convinces them to obey him rather than God. And in that exchange, there's actually an exchange of authority. And they actually give uh, authority over into the hands of the devil. And so, uh, yeah, and so it's, it's made clear when the devil's tempting Jesus. And he offers him all of these dominions and, uh, what does he say? He says, uh, like, it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. And so he's been given authority over this dominion, over this whatever. And Satan ruled and controlled the nations. And then when Jesus came and died on the cross and defeated Satan in the grave, he stripped authority from the devil and restores uh, rulership back to himself and delegates us as his church and his bride to exercise authority when he gives us the Great Commission. And so, break down a few things. So the Great Commission starts with this phrase, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so, I wanna make it clear that like, the authority in like the heavenlies was never in question at all. Like, God has always reigned and always had all authority in the heavens. Um, but it's at this point that now, Jesus has taken authority of the earth. And so, uh, where am I? And so since Jesus has all authority and he's commissioned us, it's important to understand that he holds all the keys and that we're on the winning side. Um, that we've been given responsibility and authority to demonstrate and uphold the kingdom through relationship with Jesus. And uh, in other words, we have all we need to fulfill the Great Commission. If you hear anything from my externally processing all that, hear that we have all that we need to fulfill the Great Commission. 
through a relationship with him. Like, I think, yes, there's always more that we can grow into God. The point is that we have access to it all now. And um, it, it uh, yeah, it should open a door for us to not, like, despair into hopelessness when we see, like, all the world's problems. It should actually inspire us to, like, run to the place of prayer and actually be, like, charged with action. And so... Um, how many of y'all ever heard, have ever heard the phrase, like, the kingdom now, but not yet? So that's like a, I first heard it in the vineyard, but I don't know where it really came from. And so I'm just going to, like, rattle off a few verses. And so in the Gospels, obviously, Jesus multiple times says the kingdom is at hand, meaning that it's within your grasp. Uh, he teaches the disciples that when they're born again, it causes them to see the kingdom. He teaches them that to enter the kingdom, they must become childlike. He exhorts us not to worry about what to eat to live or what to wear, but in all things to seek the kingdom first and he will provide. In Matthew 16, 28, he says that there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He sends his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom and perform healing. He even tells us that he's given us the kingdom in Luke 12, 32, where he says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And so, as saints, children, as his bride, like, pick your title. <laughs> like, we have received a measure of his kingdom. Uh, I talked, this, this is what I was externally processing with Haley and Jeffrey last night in the car. So I know, theologically, that the kingdom is both now, but not yet. Uh, the problem or the reason why I lean towards the kingdom being more now is because I don't want to ever have a limit to like at this point I can quit contending for things and I don't think Jesus ever puts a limit on our faith and so I think for for the long time for for the long time for a long time uh, I've, I've interacted with people that have pushed promises into eternity into like the next age and I think so yeah, y'all, theologically, I know that's true. I, I absolutely know that there are things that I will be praying for that I want to see happen that are reserved for the next age. But that doesn't, I don't want that to stop me from praying for those things. And I don't think that's what, I don't think Jesus is going to be like, oh yeah, you get a free pass because of that. And um, like, yes, I, I think the day of the Lord, like when he comes back, when we stand before him face to face, will be the most glorious day for all believers and all of creation, honestly. And I said this a long time ago when we first got here, but I think it's sometimes so great. And if we have this victim mentality, we can kind of like hide our unbelief there. And we just like give up on contending for breakthrough and just push it into like eternity and say like, he'll take care of that later. And um, I just don't think at any point he tells us to quit contending or believing for breakthrough. If anything, in Luke 18, he tells us to be like annoying about it. To the point where if he, like if he's the, like he's basically saying, if you bug me enough about it, I'll give it to you. I know that's not how it works out practically all the time, but like, that's essentially what he's saying in Luke 18. And so, yeah, I get frustrated sometimes when I hear people like championing like, oh, the kingdom is not yet. Because 
one, I feel like it's a justification for unbelief at times, and two, it's a, it's like a cop-out to not actually press in for a solution. And so, I think regardless of whether it's for now or for later, if it's been exposed to you, you have, you have a role to play. It might only be prayer. You might literally pray for something for 80 years and then never see breakthrough, but you have a role to play. And so, um, like, God has called us to be answers to the world's problems, like to bring solutions, not to just run away from them. And, uh, yeah, I even got convicted because I'm like, I am so quick to get in debates over these topics. Like, so quick to be like, debate the, the question of why did God let this, like, A, B, and C happen? And it's really easy for me to, like, really engage in debate and try to assign blame or responsibility for, for anything to someone. And I, like, I just feel challenged yesterday. Like, I don't even want to, not that I don't want to ask the question. I think those are good questions. But, like, I want my gut instinct to be, like, prayer. I want my gut instinct to be, like, okay, Lord, give me a blueprint. Give me a strategy to solve this problem. Like, rather than just being, like, oh, like, an earthquake happened and, like, X amount of number of people died and there's X amount of number of people, like, homeless. And it's just, like, oh, like, why would God let that happen? I want to be, like, I want to, like, shift into, like, action mode and being, like, what can we as the church do to help these people? Rather than, like, just go straight into, like, theological debate about it. And so, um, I think at times we're way too quick to push our responsibility away as the people of God and just let someone else take responsibility. And so, I was excellently processing all this and Haley and Jeffrey were like, well, what does it look like to disciple a nation? And I don't, I honestly don't know. I texted Leah and I was like, I have no idea how to tackle this issue because I barely know how to disciple an individual, let alone think about discipling a neighborhood or a city or an island or a nation. But what I do feel like the Lord showed me is like taking ownership and taking responsibility for the land that you're in is like the first step. Because whatever you own, whatever you take responsibility for, um, you just look at it differently. You pray about things differently when it's yours. And this will this like will really challenge us in any like short-term mindset that we have. Like if you're willing to establish this place as home and own it, you will pray differently. You will think differently about it. I know for me, like even just having a child here shifted something in me. I don't know that I could have put it into words at that point, but I'm like, okay, now whatever happens to Bali, it's one thing if it just affects me, like, but I'm like, meh. The fact that it could affect my son really, really matters. And now all these issues become really big issues to me. And so, I think this, like, like when you see problems or when you look at, like, the difficulties of the world around you, is your gut reaction is like, oh, that's so sad, those poor people. Or is it that you're, like, moved and, like, moved by compassion? Honestly, that's what it is. Like, moved by compassion and moved to prayer and moved to action. I think this is, like, like radical ownership of, of people, of a land, 
is like the first step in, in learning to disciple a nation. And, and you, can tell, you can tell where people sit by the way that they talk about things. And so when, uh, you can just tell when someone like comes up to you and they're like, oh, your church needs to change da 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 da, da or the church needs to change da 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 da. You can pretty much tell from the get code they're not willing to be part of the solution. It's when they're like, our church needs to change. Our community needs to change. It's, they're taking ownership of it. Like, this is our thing, and we need to do something about it. Am I going too fast? And so, just to wrap up, and be short today. Like, as the body of Christ, we have, we have what it takes. Like, we have access to so much in relationship with Jesus, through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And guys, 12 young fishermen, I mean, not all of them were fishermen, 12 young men changed the world. Like, in this room, there's more than 12 of us. 12 young men, full of the Holy Spirit, full of boldness, full of courage, changed the world. Because they didn't believe that they were small. Like, so in, in rabbit trail, I've heard this. I'm a rabbi. Like that was like the highest career calling. And so like as a child, you went to synagogue, you learned the Torah, you learned to memorize certain things. And when you became of age, you would actually go and present yourself to a rabbi to become his disciple. And so, I might be getting a little bit of this wrong because I heard this a long time ago. But when you present yourself to this rabbi, they will basically test you in the scriptures. And so they um, would usually say like the first half of a verse and then you would have to quote the second half and then give your interpretation of it. And off of that, the rabbi would basically say like, well done, you can now be my, my disciple or my mentor. Or he would say, go back and do like, do your father's trade. The reason why that's so significant is because all the disciples were doing their father's trade. Like they were like the low of the low. They like didn't make the cut. And then Jesus chooses them. And so, oh, I have it in here somewhere. Hold on, let me find this. However, okay. So you know the, the passage where they're walking along the road and they're arguing over who's the greatest? And Jesus is like, what are y'all talking about? And they're like, oh, nothing. The reason why I love that story so much is because you have these people that were told when they were young, you're not worth it. You're not good enough to be a disciple. You're not good enough to study the scriptures. Like, just go and do what your father did. And these people, these young men who had that told to them and walked away with their heads down are now arguing over who's the best. And so while I'm like, the method is not always the great, greatest, but even in that story, like Jesus, if you read it, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. He doesn't, he just redirects their idea of greatness. He says, if you want to be great, you become like a child. If you want to be great, you serve one another. And so this like weird false humility, like tall poppy thing that we have in the church, I think is so not God. I think there's a way to be great and not carry pride. There's a way to be great and and not be a jerk about it. And uh, you ever think about like 
Well, not. I think about this. So say, say you just imagine with me. You're a painter, okay? Say, imagine you're like painting a painting, and you spend like weeks on this painting. It's like the most effort and time you've ever put into it. You've like thought about it so much. You're you put it on exhi uh, exhibition. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> And so you notice someone is standing there, he's really studying it. You can tell he's like looking at the colors. He's um, like noticing how they all blend together. And he steps back and you're like, so what do you think? He's like, this is horrible. The colors are horrible. Nothing goes together. It's basically a piece of junk and it's ugly. That doesn't, like as, a, as the painter, you would feel pretty bad about yourself, yeah? Sometimes that's what we do. Like, God forms us in our mother's womb. Like, he spends, he thinks about us. He forms us. He makes us in his image. And sometimes we walk around thinking that, like, to deal with pride, we have to cut ourselves down, thinking that it will give glory to God. And it just doesn't. If anything, it actually is an insult to him. And so I know that there's a way to be great and give glory to God. And you don't have to like sacrifice one for the other. I don't even know where I went there. Um, oh, all that to say, like, you're not small in the kingdom. Like you have been given a lot of authority and a lot of responsibility. And you're meant to dream really, really big impossible dreams. And so like, as the body of Christ, like we're equipped with the kingdom of God, which brings righteousness, peace, and joy. We have uh, authority, like in relationship with Jesus, we carry the unconditional love of God and give it to people and people encounter it. Even before we understand it ourselves, we carry grace, we carry mercy, courage, uh, wisdom, like supernatural from heaven wisdom. We have a loving father that we get to just talk to and approach the throne boldly and talk to him about things. And he knows how to deal with people in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. And we have Jesus who has the answers to all the world's issues and, and problems, whether they're for now or later, I don't know. I think that if we're willing, like really, really willing to take ownership of the land that we're in, the neighborhoods that we live in, the people that we interact with, um, and we just follow the burden that the Lord that the Lord gives us. Not just follow it, but follow it beyond what's expected of us. That's that's the difference in someone who's just obedient because they have to be, and someone who takes responsibility for something. It's like they go beyond. They go beyond what's just expected of them. I believe He'll give us strategies. I believe He'll give us strength and grace to see breakthrough beyond what we can imagine. I do think that if we just treat ministry as a job that we clock in and out of, um, I think we'll see salvations. I think we'll see miracles. I think we'll see healings. But I don't think we'll see like the greater than that. I don't think we'll, we'll ever move towards actually discipling more than just individuals. And so, let me see if you can come up. I just want us to like, close in prayer um, for Bali. It's where we live. 
and and I really want like the thing is like to disciple a nation we have to be willing to give more more than what's required of us more than what we think we can accomplish and the truth is I don't feel ready for that I'm like I feel tired now let <laughs> alone like thinking about trying to do more you know and and it's okay like there's no shame in like not feeling there but I want to feel there and so I want the Lord to expand our capacity I want him to give ultimately I want to have his heart so much that I can't help but give more like I want to be driven by compassion driven by mercy and so um yeah, let's see, just pray. How about we just like break up in small group prayers and just take the next like few minutes and just really, really pray for Bali. Pray for your neighborhoods. Ask, ask the Lord to touch your hearts. Like ask the Lord to soften your heart for this land. And so I'll just come back in like four or five minutes and we'll close.